Welcome to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast. I'm Rick Samprin. We speak with a Hamilton doctor who shares his experience after getting COVID. What will come out of the Red Hill Valley Parkway inquiry? If they're not overhauled, women's shelters say they may have to turn away survivors. A new study shows just how deplorable the Prime Minister's residence is. We chat about the legacy left by hockey legend Guy Lafleur. And you won't believe what kind of litter was collected in the latest cleanup in Hamilton. The GMH podcast starts now. This is the Good Morning Hamilton podcast on 900 CHML. The medical director of the Hamilton General Hospital's intensive care unit is sharing his experience after contracting COVID-19. And uh, by all accounts, the experience was not a good one. Dr. Sanjay Sharma is our guest. He's the head of neurosurgery at Hamilton General Hospital. Dr. Sharma, good morning. How are you? Good morning. I'm well, thanks. How are you? I'm okay. You tested positive back on March the 10th, this after dodging the virus while working in a high-risk setting for two years. It finally got you. Was there a sense of disbelief? There truly was. Uh, you know, I, I got home that evening and I wasn't feeling well and I thought it maybe just had a cold or some allergies. And so when we did the test, uh, <laughs> tested positive, I kind of had to do another one because I couldn't believe that I had it. So it was definitely a surprise. How did it impact you? Uh, well, it made me pretty sick uh, and my whole family sick. Uh, and so I was, you know, I was supposed to actually be working in the intensive care unit uh, the next day. And so I was off of work for 10 days. Um, and so that didn't help the current HR uh, issues we have in the hospital. But, yeah, it really kind of brought home how sick you can get from this. I have three vaccines, and so I'm pretty convinced um, had I not had the vaccines, I probably would have ended up in the hospital. So what was it like? What were some of the symptoms that you were uh, having to deal with? Yeah, so I had a very high fever uh, in the 104 area for about three or four days. Um, couldn't really get out of bed uh, because I was, you know, my muscles were sore and um, just, you know, tired and really bad headaches and, and was completely out of commission. Um, my wife also had the same symptoms, but she's also lost her sense of smell and taste. So that's only slowly co- starting to come back now. Was there ever a thought that, uh, oh boy, I have to, I have to end up in the hospital? For me, for me, no. But uh, certainly, one of my younger children, we were on the cusp of taking him to the emergency department because his breathing was so bad. Luckily, we didn't have to, but absolutely, that was a, that was a major fear. Wow. How are you guys doing now? Uh, we're all great, other than the fact that my uh, wife can't taste my terrible cooking. Uh, <laughs> we're all doing fantastic. So there is maybe a positive for her, at least. There might be. <laughs> Dr. Sanjay Sharma is our guest. He's the head of neurosurgery at Hamilton General Hospital, the medical director at the General's ICU, uh, sharing with us his recent experience with contracting COVID-19. And, and you just referenced it. You know, this all came as many of your colleagues, staff, physicians at the hospital, are being forced to stay home because they either got the virus or they're in close contact with it. And it's really hampering things, not only at the General, but many hospitals and many facilities across, uh, really around the world. Yeah, we're all very concerned. I mean, the weather's starting to hopefully turn around now, and we anticipate, for instance, at the general, that this will be a particularly busy trauma season. But we're at a point now where uh, with the nurses and docs and RTs off with COVID, we're having real trouble um, even maintaining the the service we can provide at the moment. So um, it is very concerning uh, that people are getting it. And they may not be getting sick, but they have to stay home from work, which... Um, kind of impairs the hospital's ability to provide care. 
So how are you and the other physicians at the general making it work? Well, it's a whole team. Uh, it's it's uh, the, the physicians, the RTs, um, the nurses, and really I think everyone who isn't sick is having to do extra and going over and above. I think that's kind of the hidden story that people don't get to see that um, the healthcare providers that are that are not that don't have COVID are sacrificing weekends, time with their family, uh, their vacations, just to keep the hospital moving uh, because so many people are off. We've heard about uh, burnout for the last couple of years. I'm, I'm sure you are past the point of burnout now. Yeah, we're already we're already for this to be over. It's been a really tough two years, um, and I think most of us, in some way, shape, or form, are burnt out. But we're just hopeful that um, you know, with 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 the start of the summer, and hopefully, people remain kind of vigilant about this, that we don't have to go through another summer like we did last summer. I don't know that uh, everyone has it in them to do it. Our guest on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML is Dr. Sanjay Sharma, head of neurosurgery at a Hamilton General Hospital, sharing with us his experience with COVID-19. What message about COVID do you have for our listeners today? I, I think just to to reinforce that COVID isn't gone, and it probably won't ever be gone, but we do have to start getting back to normal life, but we don't want to do that too soon. You know, we're, we're close, I, I think, to the end uh, of, of starting to, to live with this, but if we start celebrating too soon and become too relaxed too early, there's a real possibility that we're going to end up back like we were six months ago, and, and nobody wants that, particularly the physicians and the nurses and the hospitals, but we run the risk. It's, it, we're not out of the woods yet, so people still need to be careful. Dr. Sharma, thank you for telling us your story and sharing uh, some insights into the virus and how it impacts individuals, including yourself. Uh, good luck today and the rest of the way. Thanks so much. Take care. That is uh, Dr. Sharma, head of neurosurgery, the medical director of the Hamilton General Hospital's intensive care unit. Uh, contracting COVID, and you can imagine, after beating it for a couple of years, the disbelief, that's the word I keep coming back to, about finally getting it. It's almost an inevitability. But, uh, you know, after beating it for a couple of years, you're thinking, okay, I'm in this hospital for two years. I've, I haven't gotten it yet. You know, COVID's here, there, and everywhere. And then all of a sudden, boom, it hits you like a Mack truck. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. A little later in the morning is the Red Hill Valley Parkway Inquiry, at least the next phase in this process. So what can we expect? Let's bring in our next guest. He's 900 CHML News reporter Ken Mann. Uh, Let's remind our listeners about why this inquiry is, is being held. What's going on? Well, it's the results, of course, of a 2019 vote by City Council, which discovered uh, that followed rather the discovery of a report into friction levels on the parkway surface, which had been written back in 2013, and it noted that the uh, the friction levels were lower than on the Lincoln Alexander Expressway, for example, and it did recommend more investigation into that finding. The trouble, though, was that report did not surface until several years later in 2018-2019 prior to the city council vote which is what prompted the move in the first place and uh, and uh, trying to discover of course why that report hadn't been released uh, who perhaps had made decisions leading to that and and uh, that may be some of the answers we get along the way as this inquiry now moves forward in its public phase Rick so the the inquiry is going to happen in two phases. What happens in phase one? 
Well, in phase one, we're going to hear from, uh, I would gather, dozens of, of witnesses who will appear before the inquiry to talk about the parkway construction and uh, and the and the surfacing of it. This any and all reports that were that were prepared in relation to the parkway's construction, and uh, and that will move us forward into. And the phase one, by the way, is going to continue for several months. This is not going to be a quick process. Phase one isn't scheduled to finish until around August, and then phase two. Uh, starting in the fall. So this is going to carry us through pretty much the rest of 2022. I wouldn't think any findings or anything that will come forward will happen until likely next year. So is there a shift in focus when phase two begins this fall? I That's a good question, Rick. I, this whole process is a little bit new for me as well. I've, I've not experienced too many of these in my career. Um, uh, all I know is that uh, a lot of witnesses have already been interviewed and and lined up to appear before the inquiry in its two phases. And a lot of documents have been found and collected and, and gathered and put together for this inquiry. Something like 115,000 documents, I believe, was was the last number I had heard. So uh, a lot of the pre-work uh, has been going on right through this entire pandemic and back to 2019. Our guest on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML is 900 CHML News reporter Ken Mann. We're talking about the Red Hill Valley Parkway Inquiry, which is set to begin today, Phase 1 at least, which will stretch until uh, at least August, and then Phase 2 begins this fall. Uh, this, this process has already cost taxpayers a pretty penny, right? Oh, that's right. Thirteen million dollars, a little more than that, in fact, has been spent already, even in, even in advance of getting into this public hearing stage. Uh, the estimate is, in the fi- when all is said and done, we should be up in the range of of twenty million dollars. But uh, most councillors believe that this was really the only decision they could make at the time. The public wanted and needed answers, and um, and and they feel like. Spending the money on this process, even though it is a lot, was necessary to to maintain, uh, restore public trust as far as this issue is concerned. City has also spent uh, over eight million bucks just to resurface the road. Uh, what three, four years ago now? So there's there's that cost as well. There's also, as we know, a multi million dollar court case going on led by victims of crashes on the Parkway. I'm not sure if you've seen any of the names attached to this inquiry, but are we expecting any of the litigants to be involved? in this inquiry? I do believe that, um, uh, well, I know that many of them have been interviewed as part of the process. I do believe some will appear before the inquiry. However, I should point out that the, the inquiry and the and the class action lawsuits are two separate processes. They, uh, they don't overlap in terms of any decisions that may result um, from this inquiry. Uh, I, I, the way I understand it, they will not they will not inform the uh, the class action lawsuits at least in terms of an actual you know the processes are different is is what I'm trying to say I'm not sure how much overlap there is between them and these uh, hearings this inquiry is going to be held virtually as well so people can can watch. I'm not sure if yeah, it's going to be much CTV, but they can watch it. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I think for some people it may be. Yeah. I, I think a lot of people have been waiting a long time for this process to get underway and are very interested in, in what the result is going to be here. So, yes, you're right. Uh, I, I don't think back when we, when this when this judicial inquiry was requested in 2019 that we would have foreseen this coming prior to the pandemic. But, yes, 
everything will be held virtually uh, Monday through Thursday each day on a normal basis or each week on a normal basis is what I understand uh, they start at 9:30 in the morning run until about four in the afternoon and yes there is a YouTube channel set up by the Red Hill Valley Parkway inquiry that will that will capture all of what happens and I also uh, it's also my understanding that through the through the inquiry's website you'll be able people will be able to watch after the fact there and even view a transcript of what has happened each day uh, we got less than a minute here is is there any um, inclination on when a final report will be issued following this inquiry I that would be hard to hazard I guess but uh, one would one would think based on any previous um, core hearings or, or inquiries that I've covered that when months and months of, of testimony and data has to be has to be considered, I would think the judge would take his time. So uh, you would likely expect that if phase one is going through August and then we're going through phase two in the fall, that uh, Judge Wilton Siegel, who is the, the inquiry head here, he might uh, take some time into next year to to make a, a decision on any recommendations, but uh, that's really up to him, and, and we shall see going forward, I suppose. Yeah, we will watch going forward as well, and Ken will be at uh, on the front lines covering this uh, Red Hill Valley Parkway inquiry. Ken, thanks for the time. Uh, good luck covering the story. Thanks very much, Rick. Have a great day. You too. That's 900 CHML News reporter Ken Mann giving us uh, the 411 on the Red Hill Valley Parkway Inquiry that begins today. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. Women's shelters say they are running the risk of turning away survivors of abuse if the system isn't overhauled. Sue Taylor is the new executive director of Interval House Hamilton and joins us now on Good Morning Hamilton. Good morning, Sue. How are you? I'm very good, thank you. Good morning. How is Interval House and uh, other women's shelters in the city doing right now? Is, is it a case of treading water? Is it even worse than that? Well, I think it's fair to say that before the pandemic, BAW shelters, we were always, always overextended, and we constantly functioned over capacity. Definitely with COVID, women have reported an increase in prevalence of, prevalence of violence and the severity of violence. And right now, as a result of COVID, the demand for safe space and support has continu- continued to grow exponentially. And yes, we struggle uh, trying to find safe space for women each day. So have you had to turn women away? Do you, do you have to point them to other uh, shelter networks, either in the city or even beyond? Absolutely. Um, what we generally do is when we are over capacity, we always reach out first to our sister agencies in Hamilton, because obviously a woman usually prefers to stay in her community. Unfortunately, most nights those spaces are filled, so we will start to call out of city. Sometimes we go quite far into the province, um, and it's a lengthy process. So we will convert offices, spare rooms, wherever we can. We'll set up a cot to try to make a woman as comfortable as possible while we try to find her space. Yeah, and you want that individual to stay as close to their community as possible because, you know, their child might be going to school, they, they have to go to work. I mean, they still have to live their lives. Absolutely, these difficult decisions that women have to make, it is never a comfortable conversation when we're talking with women saying there's the potential to send you perhaps to London or to St. Thomas. You're right, women have children, children are in school, women have jobs. It's a difficult decision to make when they have to choose between their life and their safety. Our guest on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML is Sue Taylor. She's the new executive director of Interval House Hamilton. So some are calling for a national action plan. What do you think that should look like? How would it help? 
I think we're overdue. I think it completely makes sense from a due diligence perspective that we always look at our systems and our demands and that we overhaul and that we create a system that is less, less complex, uh, where funding is more available, and that we're investing in both reactive supports as well as preventative supports. So less complex. How complex is the system right now? If, if someone were to call Interval House Hamilton, what would kind of uh, hoops would they have to jump through? If a woman was calling us for safe shelter, we're going to respond pretty quickly with come to us uh, because we want the pathway to, for women for safety to be simple. Where it becomes complex is for the staff who are already overburdened with COVID, trying to find space for the woman, and it becomes complicated trying to find funding. Funding comes from multiple sources. We need an investment and a stable investment in funding. What are some of uh, the other partners in Hamilton and across uh, the the province or the country saying about this and and what's needed? I think it's a collaborative effort across the city and the province. We are all in the same boat. We are all experiencing challenges that have been exasperated because of COVID. Um, We certainly, I mean, there was gaps in the system before the pandemic, and the pandemic really just has highlighted these gaps. And it's more than just throwing money at it, right? Absolutely. I'm also a big believer in investing in preventing gender-based violence and violence against women. We do have a program at, at Interval House called Mentor Action. It's all about teaching young boys and men about gender-based violence and what they can do to end that cycle of violence. We're talking about women's shelters, and many of them in the, not only this city, but across the country say they are running the risk of turning away survivors of abuse if this system isn't overhauled. And our guest is Sue Taylor, new executive director of Interval House of Hamilton. Talk about the resilience of women in this community who you deal with on a daily basis. I have to tell you, I'm taking a moment just to take a breath because I think to all of the women who have bravely come through our doors each and every day, And when they're with us and they have their children with them and they're having to make extremely difficult decisions and they make them and they move forward. And it is such a challenge because it's safety, it's community, it's schooling, it's legal. It's more than just one decision. It's multiple decisions that a woman's going to make. Her resiliency is her strength. Uh, Nancy Smith is the outgoing executive director of Interval House, and you're taking over from Nancy. Where do you want to take Interval House into the future? What are some of your goals coming forward? I think that's a great question. Nancy is an incredible leader and an incredible mentor. I've been blessed to uh, work under her for the past six years. So where do I see us going? I think we're going to continue to provide safe shelter and support to the best of our abilities. And I say that because our deficit each year is extraordinary. Um, I also want to continue to advocate for proper funding. And I want to continue with best practices. Yeah, all good plans. Sue, we're with you. We're uh, trying to help you along uh, on the way and spreading this message out there. Good luck uh, in the future, and we'll chat with you down the road. Thank you so much. Have a wonderful day. You too. That's Sue Taylor, new executive director of Interval House of Hamilton at Women's Shelters. Not only Interval House, but many across the country calling for an overhaul of this system. Uh, What that looks like, number one, more funding. Number two, more space, because there's not enough of either. Uh, Both those buckets have to be filled uh, some way, somehow. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. A new study shows the Prime Minister's residence, 24 Sussex Drive, falls far short when compared to Canada's allies. But here's the question, though. As Canada faces an affordable housing crisis... Is now the time to consider a new home for the PM? And and this just isn't a new home 
for Justin Trudeau and his family. This would be uh, the new home for PMs for years to come. Jean-Vivre Tellier is a professor in the School of Political Studies at the University of Ottawa and joins us now on Good Morning Hamilton. Good morning, Professor Tellier. How are you today? I'm fine. Thank you very much. The federal government has revealed plans for a new home for prime ministers to show, quote, better branding of Canada as a G7 member and world player, calling 24 Sussex Drive ill-suited to receiving official visitors. How big of an embarrassment has the PM's residence become? Um, somewhat. I'm not sure it's uh, that big of, of an embarrassment because, I mean, uh, there are ad- other places where we can receive guests. Also, there's the house of the governor general that is just across the street that could accommodate other uh, foreign guests. Uh, but yes, uh, if we compare ourselves to other countries and we see, see the White House in the U.S. or Le Palais de l'Élysée in France, we may, we may have, we may want to have a similar, uh, place for for a residency for a prime minister this has been a subject for many years now and so uh, it's not clear if we should go that way or not people are kind of split on that uh, do we really need it uh, that's a question mark could it be a symbol uh, yes a landmark in ottawa yes also it's a nice piece of land um, but what's interesting i think uh, with the latest news is that now uh, finally this is a kind of an independent report it's not coming directly from the federal government, but it's coming from the National Capital Commission that finally is taking stance and is saying, well, maybe we should think about uh, offering a residency for the prime minister and making it, uh, 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 having it uh, suited to for, for the, his family to reside in and, and have guests also over there. The, uh, the house needs uh, apparently $36 million in repairs. That's a steep price tag and really money that no one appears to want to spend. Yes, and that has been the main issue because uh, if we look at the uh, Prime Minister, and not just Justin Trudeau, but Stephen Harper before him, no one want to spend money on that, on, on 24 Sussex. They don't want to give the impression that they are uh, giving them a luxury, a good house, uh, while uh, other taxpayers maybe are struggling more, especially, as you said, in your introduction with now the house, housing crisis and inflation. And so that's kind of a hot potato that they, they have in their hand. And um, but what's interesting for for now is that because the NCC is 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 giving is is providing an advice, they could say, well, this is an independent advice uh, that we should maybe look at, and that that is suggesting that we should have a, a better residency for the prime minister. So uh, it's kind of trying to depoliticize uh, this um, the, this topic. Uh, how, however, I'm not sure that it, they will because uh, yes, it does give the impression that. Yes, they are caring for themselves and not for the taxpayers. So that could be an issue. Yeah, the, the timing is horrible because we have an affordability crisis in this country. And uh, you know, if you know, when you when you consider Justin Trudeau is is by many eyed as you know born with a silver spoon in his mouth. Now mm-hmm. he's the prime minister. You know, politically, optically, this would look horrible for him. 
Yes, it will. And um, what is also very surprising is that the information was kind of leak, link or access to with a access to information request. And so the NCC was not for, uh, was not, did not provide willingly the information. And so they could have done that before, uh, not just now, but years before. They could have also tackled the issue more seriously uh, and they have not done so. And so uh, because no one wanted to really speak about that um, and, and, saw the political risk we are now in that situation that that is not good for the, for the the government that is not good for Justin Trudeau and it's not good also for the NCC uh, but the thing is that the prime minister must reside someplace he does have a residency that is paid now by taxpayer it's on the lot of the uh, governor general uh, land um, and it costs money for us uh, the same thing with the opposition leader he, uh, she uh, Candice Bergen does have her own residency that is paid by tax money uh, ta- uh, money from tax Taxpayer, and so uh, it's all the question of how much to should, what, what should be the income, what should be the uh, monetary or not monetary advantages that we provide to our uh, political class uh, leaders, and and we should discuss that. But yes, the timing is not very good. Our guest on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML, Jean-Vivre Tellier, professor in the School of Political Studies at the University of Ottawa. We're chatting about the Prime Minister's residence, 24 Sussex Drive, falling far short when compared to Canada's allies like the White House. The question again is, do we really need it? Considering the Trudeau family has lived in nearby Rideau Cottage, which is a lot smaller than 24 Sussex, but they've lived there since 2015, so... You know, over the past seven years, we haven't had to, I guess, pay for the prime minister to live in 24 Sussex, even though we're paying for the house. Do we really need it, even though we have these other kind of homes and and uh, places for meetings and such? I don't think from a logistical point of view, no, because as you said, we have the facilities elsewhere in the country, uh, the country in the city, in the city of Ottawa. So it's not an urgency. Now, if we want to have a landmark, uh, something of uh, prestige uh, that should symbolize something, uh, 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 Canadian landmark place in Ottawa, although we don't miss that, uh, we have plenty others in the city. Um, yes, we could make the point that yes, like the White House, why don't have we? Uh, why don't we have a residency for our own leaders? Now, is it really a necessity? No, that's for sure. It is not. Um, there are other places where uh, the prime minister and his family can live. There are other places where we can host events. That's for sure. And so uh, the urgency. And if we are in a, um, uh, if we have to restrain, if we are in a financial uh, restraint situation, that for sure could be one place where we could cut or say, well, we won't go that place. Now, th- there is, uh, however, a decision to be made is that what do we do now with 24 uh, Sussex Drive? Because it is costing a lot of money um, for maintenance. Uh, there is still people uh, there looking at the, at, at the house, the residence. And so we are paying while nobody lives there. So what do we want to do with that? Uh, and I think that's the main, uh, the main issue we should think about is uh, do we keep that place or... or uh, uh, do we do something else? Do we sell it? I don't know. Um, but we should have a discussion, a, a, very, a serious discussion uh, about that. Absolutely. Professor Tellier, really appreciate your time today. Thanks for joining us. Thank you very much, Rick. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. Lafleur coming out rather gingerly on the right side. He gives it into Lemaire. Back to Lafleur. Oh! I think like every kid, you know, at my age, 
we would go on the street in the summer or on the ice rink outside and thinking that we're Guy Lafleur and we wanted to be like him. Lafleur's most famous goal and former teammate and a former Habs coach Guy Carboneau on the Roy Green Show yesterday talking about the flower. And the hockey world is continuing to mourn the death of Montreal Canadiens legend Guy Lafleur, who died Friday at the age of 70 after a lengthy battle with lung cancer. Here to talk about and reminisce about Guy Lafleur is Roy Green, the host of the Roy Green Show and a lifelong Montreal Canadiens fanatic. Roy, good morning. Hey, Rick, good morning. Yes, I bleed red, white, and blue Habs colors. There was a wonderful and touching tribute to Guy last night at the Bell Centre in Montreal. As a as a lifelong Habs fan, what does the flower mean to you, to Montreal, and to the Habs? You know, uh, Rick, we, I grew up uh, with Jean Beliveau, admittedly, toward the later part of his career. And uh, Beliveau was everything to Montreal. He was, the Habs fans, number four meant the team. It meant championships. And when he retired, the worry was no one would be able to follow Jean Beliveau. And Sam Pollock, who was a genius in putting teams together, was able to engineer a situation with uh, Oakland, new in the NHL at the time, to get the first draft pick, and he got Guy Lafleur. And everyone was thrilled because Lafleur had been a tremendous player in the junior years. He'd scored so many goals and lit up uh, the province of Quebec. But when he arrived in Montreal, he really didn't do much for the first three years. And fans were wondering, did uh, Pollock do the right thing? And then, and I said this to Guy Carboneau, who was amazingly gracious to us on the weekend. I said to Guy Carboneau, then the helmet came off and the, and the puck went in the net. It was maybe coincidental, but after three years, Guy took off the helmet and he started to score. And he became the personification of what Montreal Canadiens fans hung their hats on. And, you know, that was a tremendous team they had in those days. Ultimately, they put together uh, a team that won four successive Stanley Cups heading into the 1979 season. And and I think uh, the, the moment, and we talk about this, and you just played the play-by-play of the goal being scored, but the moment Montreal Canadiens fans will never forget, and hockey fans will never forget, was when Guy Lafleur scored that goal with just seconds left in, uh, in regulation time against Gilles Gilbert and the Boston Bruins and broke my friend Don Cherry's heart. Um, and, uh, you know, um, Guy Lafleur, they'd been down 3-1 to one after two periods, seven ga- seventh game of the semifinals, abs down 3-1, to one, and Lafleur sets up two goals, and it's 3-3. Then Rick Middleton scores on Ken Dryden with about three and a half minutes left, and I remember Rick thinking, oh, my God, no, this can't be. But then we knew we had number 10. <laughs> and, and, and there it was. I'll never forget. He took the puck over the blue line, just outside the circle, and the puck's behind Gilles Gilbert, and then on they went. I, I forget who scored the winner. It, with all due respect, who did? It didn't matter because Lafleur had come through again. And I just want to say this to you. Guy Carboneau was so incredibly gracious to provide us with the interview and do everything he possibly could to be on the air because I had the sense that he really wanted to speak about his boyhood idol, his eventual teammate, number 10. And remember this, Guy Lafleur, no one before him, Rick, had scored 50 goals and 100 points six years in a row. Amazing, man. Uh, I didn't know him. I talked to him once or twice. 
and I felt a personal loss, and I still do. Here's a guy who scored 130 goals in his final season of junior hockey. And as you mentioned, it took him three years to kind of get it in the NHL. But boy, did he ever get it with, as you said, six straight 50-goal seasons, 100-point seasons. Uh, And you mentioned the hair, and that's another thing he's known for, the flash and dash. He was a a supremely skilled player and a great skater, and that really what set him apart from the other players. Um, And his passing comes just a week or so after Mike Bossy passed away as well. Two two legends who are no longer with us. It's tough to stomach. You know, it's not really positional play here now, but if I had my... I asked some friends, what would your all-time favorite forward line be? NHL. And with due respect to everyone I'm going to not mention here, like... um, some guy by the name of Gretzky, another guy by the name of who's that guy who used to play for the Pittsburgh Penguins? <laughs> Mario Lemieux. Yeah, yeah, him. <laughs> with due respect to the great, great players like Lemieux and, and Gretzky, and those I won't mention. My all-time favorite forward line, if I if I don't have to have them in their correct positions, would have been Lafleur, Lemaire, and Bossy. Wow, that's quite the line. They'd score a lot of goals and prevent a lot of them as well. Roy, we got to run. Thanks for reminiscing with us this morning. My pleasure, Rick, and congratulations on such a great show. Hey, thank you very much. Uh, Roy Green, host of the Roy Green Show, weekday or weekdays, weekends, Saturday, Sunday, from 2 until 5. Check it out if you have not already. You can also download the Roy Green Show podcast as well. Uh, by the way, the Quebec government says Lafleur is going to be honored with a national funeral on May the 3rd, giving um, more credence to the magnitude that this man had on Quebecers and many Canadians. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. Great weekend this past weekend. Not only weather-wise, but to uh, not only protect our planet, too, just to make it a little bit greener. Get all that litter out of the way. The Escarpment Project held its 10th annual cleanup initiative in the city this past Saturday. And here to tell us about it is the founder of the Escarpment Project, Greg Lenko. Greg, good morning. Welcome back to the show. Morning, Rick. Thank you. How did this weekend go? It was phenomenal. Wow. Um, The rain held off. The sun actually came out for a little bit and uh, a lot of people showed up. It was great. That is cool. So now that you've cleaned up a big part of the city, how does it feel? You know, what? it obviously feels fantastic. You know, you get that instant gratification. You can see the results. But I always, because I organize it, I always go back and forth between, oh, my God, was it good enough? Did people have a good time? Did they get enough garbage? Because, you know, you don't want people to be disappointed. So for me, it's and, – and I don't actually get a chance to clean up because <laughs> I'm organizing everything anymore uh, nowadays. So, um, But it, it does. It feels really great, really gratifying, you know. Your, your comment uh, uh, about people getting enough garbage, was there enough garbage to be gotten? Oh my God! Yeah, holy cow! Um, it's amazing what two years of not cleaning up would do because of COVID. Um, there were some areas when when we go and we scope out an area, we're like, "Is there really much here?" And so, for some areas, I actually stopped people from going there and said, "Okay, this area, you know, we have enough people here. Sign up for another location on the website." And next thing I know, it's one of the dirtiest areas because people get off the trails and they get up into the woods and stuff like that, into the trees, and, and, and they, they find so much stuff that you don't even see. So where were some of the problem spots or, or dirtiest areas of the city? There's a place on DeWitt Road. just on, It's about 50 feet from the Bruce Trail. Now, coming up DeWitt Road, it's one way, and people will go there in the middle of the night and make a dump. 
and um, and meaning dumping garbage. <laughs> yeah, no, no, I, I was I was with you there. <laughs> well, maybe maybe they do that too. Well, yeah. I don't know. <laughs> uh, so there, that area there, if if you drove up DeWitt Road right now, you would see the mounds of garbage that we got. Uh, I know there are at least twenty tires alone, and then there's the mounds of garbage. So that's one. Uh, Wentworth Stairs, it's the central of the city. It's the most used uh, part of the Bruce Trail and the most used stairs in the city. So there is another huge mound of garbage there. And in um, Dundas, near Rock Chapel Road, at the end of Rock Chapel Road, there's like a little laneway as it veers around the escarpment. And that used to be, uh, I think, um, some sort of a quarry. And... There's been stuff there. I mean, we got license plates from there from the 60s because there's a couple of cars there, but we got a lot of stuff out of that. As a matter of fact, the the, the dumpster we got for that area, it is loaded with scrap metal. Wow. Like literally. And, and the dumpster is taller than I am. It's one of those. Wow. Greg Lenko is our guest on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. Greg is the founder of the Escarpment Project. They held their 10th annual cleanup initiative in Hamilton this past Saturday. What was the most common item that your team collected? Mm. You mean aside from plastic water bottles? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, okay, so, so things other than typical litter, I would say tires and shopping carts. Wow. That's, yeah. pretty, that's pretty disturbing. It kind of is, yeah. Because well, I mean, the kids and shop and some of these shopping carts were actually the trees were growing through them. Um, so, like the trees were dead, but they had grown through them. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So you actually had to pull them off the tree or the bush or whatever it was. So um, odds are they've been there for a while. Oh yeah, definitely, definitely. So where does all this junk go? It goes to the landfill site, I guess. You know, well, the the scrap metal obviously goes to the scrap metal, but. Uh, yeah, the the junk is, and and I guess the tire, the city takes it, right? And the tires go to wherever they put the tires, and you know all that kind of stuff. But otherwise, it's landfill, unfortunately. So, apart from scrap metal and license plates and tires and shopping carts, were there any weird items? If that's not weird <laughs> enough, uh, yeah, there was. <laughs> Anything that you can I'm tell not, us about? I'm not going to jump to any conclusions or draw any conclusions, but. We found some uh, some toys, some battery operated, some not battery operated that you can't get at Walmart or um, you know places like that <laughs> or Toys R Us. They're adult toys, um, wow. along with some lingerie and this is just really strange. But someone's wedding band, <laughs> a guy's wedding band. So I'm not drawing any conclusions. Wow, someone had a fun night, I'll say that. Between the shopping carts and the tires and the other stuff. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly, yeah. Uh, how many uh, How many volunteers did you have out over the weekend? I know we had at least 400. I haven't done a complete count yet of everybody that signed in. Wow, so how does that compare to past years? It's about average, actually. The most we've ever had was just over 800. And when we first started, when people were first learning about it, the first year we had between 75 and 100, and that was for the very first waterfall cleanup, which was Devil's Punch Bowl. And then it just grew from there. Uh, Greg Lenko is our guest. He's the founder of the Escarpment Project. It held its 10th annual cleanup initiative in Hamilton this past Saturday and found a boatload of junk. Um, now that you've hit the big one zero, what's what's the future of the Escarpment Project looking like? Oh, boy. Um, well, what I want to do is turn it into a charity. Um, the barbecue is very important to me because I want to say thank you to everybody that came out. And if I 
can turn it into a charity, that means I can get more money from sponsors and I can make the barbecue even better. And then I can also um, use those resources because there's some places that we need a crane to get stuff out. So I can use resources, you know, uh, to rent a crane for a day or a week or whatever and pull stuff out. Well, wow, that's pretty cool. And, oh, and expand too. Yeah. Already planning for 2023? Yes. <laughs> Actually, I am and I don't know why. <laughs> what else does the escarpment project do throughout the year? Is this just a one-time thing, or is this an or a, a a daily or a weekly um, thing that you have in your mind that you're continuing to clean up the city? Yeah, no, it's um, we have the one large cleanup annually, and then we have as as we can get volunteers every you know few months, we might go out and do one little location here and there. Uh, but but what I've noticed from from the first year. Uh, in the second year, is that people really don't want to come out every month to clean the escarpment. I mean, you do have people that will, like 10 or 15, maybe 20, that will come out to certain locations once in a while. But uh, for the most part, they don't want to. So, you know, in spring, everybody's itching to get out. They want to enjoy some fresh air and they want to do some good. So, and it's, and it's Earth Day. I don't want to use that. When I didn't know about Earth Day, when I, when it first, when I first started it, I was just a guy that wanted to clean up. Um, so that tends to be when people want to do it. Our city is that much more cleaner thanks to Greg Lenko and the hundreds of volunteers who came out this past Saturday to clean up uh, a, a big swath of the city of Hamilton. Greg, really appreciate your time today. Congrats on the continued success and can't wait for bigger and better things for the Escarpment Project. Thanks for joining us today. For sure. Thank you. That is Greg Lenko, founder of the Escarpment Project. As you heard, a, a ton of garbage, litter. Tires, shopping carts, scrap metal collected from various uh, locations in the city and now going to a landfill and uh, recycling centers and uh, and the like. And uh, the, our city is that much more cleaner today. So that's awesome. Big thanks to all the volunteers who came out. Thanks for listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday mornings from 530 to 9 on 900 CHML and online at 900CHML.com. The Good Morning Hamilton podcast is available on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, Podcast and wherever you get your favorite podcast. I'm Rick Samprin. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure you rate and review.